to you. Good afternoon, good afternoon to you. Welcome everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in at my alternative time today. Tomorrow we will be back at our regular meeting time of 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. But thank you for coming on. And it is Theology Thursday. Well, let's talk about the first part of my theology, and that is getting banned. <laughs> I have been banned from Facebook communication for the next two days now. It, it is. It was a total of three days. I'm down to two days. And let's see, I cannot post, I cannot message, I cannot use my stories, I cannot respond or react to anyone commenting or tagging me. I can accept tags, but I can't tag. Isn't that interesting? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I can't respond to anything for anyone on any of my pages for the next two days. So look for me to come back probably Saturday and I might even go live and tell Facebook what I think about this bogus uh, ban. Yeah, so that is what's happening. So you can hashtag free Shantae Charles. That's why if you wanna help me, do that. <laughs> hashtag free Shantae Charles and at NBC Universal, because that is the people who have gotten me in this condition of being blocked. Apparently, I used a video clip of theirs to teach on parenting, and they said that I did not have permission to use it. I used it under fair use, which is what most people utilize um, when they are sharing video or content that is not theirs. You can share teachings and teach on things under fair use, especially if you are not making a profit off of it, you're not gaining anything monetarily from it, which I am not. NBC Universal said, no, you've, you don't, you're not allowed to use our film even under fair use. So because of that decision, not MSNBC, NBC Universal. So because of that decision, Facebook took the post down, which is fine. I don't care that they've taken the post down. But then to come behind that and ban me and be punitive and say, you can't communicate with people through this platform. I am very thankful that I don't earn my income through social media platforms. Because if I did, if I earn my income through Facebook, that would be three days of lost revenue and income. Facebook does not allow me to monetize anything there. They don't allow me to monetize reels, videos, any of the content that I post there. So yeah, if you would like to support me as a content creator, join my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash daring dialogues. So support those of us who are creating content and are educating and are teaching. Follow me on Anchor. Anchor.fm forward slash Daring Dialogues. Those are ways that you can support what it is that we do outside of Facebook. 
All right. We do have a special guest again with us today. Come on over, special guest. <laughs> and we are continuing our reading from Carved in Ebony, Lessons from the Black Women Who Shape Us. It's very interesting that black women are still going through the same things. It's, oh, and the irony is it is Black Women's History Month, and yet Facebook is banning a black woman. Go figure. I mean, <laughs> they were doing crazy stuff during Women's History Month, and they were doing crazy stuff during Black History Month. Oh, the ironies. So we have been reading about Lucy Craft Laney. And we are continuing part two of her life. The great debate. The debate of the day during her time was over whether black students would be better served by learning trades or by learning liberal arts. Staunch commentators like Booker T. Washington maintained that the road to black acceptance in white society was paved by respectability. Well, we know now he was wrong, don't we? And that respectability could be best achieved by a trade. Racial uplift, he argued, would be the result of hard work and elbow grease. On the opposite end of the spectrum, others maintained the importance of a liberal arts education, arguing that the way to gain traction in this society was through the ability to enter into meaningful intellectual discourse and to fight for equal rights regardless of respectability and trade. Well, we know he too was wrong, don't we? <laughs> because how many of us have entered into intellectual discourse and have been banned, right? And how many of us are fighting for equal rights? Yeah. And there's still racism and oppressive tactics that persist. So looking back in hindsight, that's what they thought at their time. They thought, well, if, if black people just get more educated, racism will go away. Mm. Or if black people just worked harder, <laughs> people would see how hard we work and racism would go away. Well, we know both, neither of those things are true today, right? It doesn't matter because the mindset of people in those mindsets really has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them and their perception of the world. And until there's some divine intervention that happens and steps in, some of them are going to remain the way they are for the rest of their life. All right. On the so yeah, Jennifer Lund Smith writes this, black educators at the turn of the century engaged in a fierce debate about the merits of liberal arts education versus a vocational education. I'm gonna say, get it all, get both, but don't let your attainment be for the gaze of white people. Can I say it that way? Get all you want, get all you can but understand that it shouldn't be predicated upon getting white people to accept you or getting white people to like you. Does that make sense? Booker T. Washington, the founder of Tuskegee Institute articulated the argument that African-Americans needed vocational skills above all to gain economic power and independence. W.E.B. Dubois, 
or Du Bois, rather, who earned degrees at Fisk University and Harvard and who taught economics and history at Atlanta University forcefully disagreed. He, continued, he contended that intellectual parity would empower Black Americans. In refusing to reject vocational education, Laney mixed both ideas together. She mixed idealism and pragmatism together. Furthermore, philanthropists tended to fund vocational schools, which they considered less threatening to them. You heard that? More generously than liberal art schools for black students and the intense competition for benefactors money most likely influenced Laney's decision to include vocational classes for her students. Lucy Craft Laney School existed on the cusp of both of these ideas. Establishing her own curriculum, she offered both vocational and liberal arts education satisfying both ends of the spectrum and gaining traction with her investors as well as her educational contemporaries. She attended Booker T. Washington's talks and was familiar with Tuskegee's pragmatic curriculum. It was obvious that she viewed it with respect. She taught practical skills that would transition well into the job market of the day, but she also taught Latin. Laney had taught herself to read Latin at the age of 12 translating Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War. I have taught Latin for six years out of my teaching career, and I might be able to get through a paragraph of Caesar, the author here states. Lucy felt that teaching her students domestic arts and marketable skills was just as important as teaching them languages and humanities. She admonished her students to stay in step with the progress of the world, seeming to borrow from Du Bois's worldview. In 1890, she added the first kindergarten in Augusta to her school. She would also go on to open Lamar Nursing School as an extension of Haynes. Her graduates would go on to colleges such as Yale and Fisk. Although a teacher first, Lucy was also involved in activism. In 1917, she hosted the organizational meeting of the Augusta chapter of the NAACP, helping to found the chapter in 1918. According to the New Georgia Encyclopedia, Haynes not only offered his students a holistic approach to education, but also served as a cultural center for the African-American community. The school hosted things like orchestra concerts and lectures by nationally famous guests and various social events. So impactful was this school on the youth of Georgia that along with Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Henry McNeil Turner, Lucy would be one of the first Black Americans to have their portraits hung in the Georgia State Capitol. Now Lucy Craft Laney High School, Lucy's life work still lives on to this day. A museum stands in Augusta in her honor, detailing her contribution to the young people of the state. When I first started compiling a list of women's names for this book, Lucy Craft felt almost too illustrious. This woman has a museum, a school, and other Augusta staples that bear the honor of her name. Could she really be counted among the never known or forgotten women? I decided to include her because though her name was one that I never knew. And if I had heard her name, I'm not sure I ever understood what a staunchly Christian woman she was or how big a part the Presbyterian church played 
in her ability to found and run her school. It was in fact Presbyterian Marjorie E.W. Smith who remarked in 1934 that Lucy had been staunchly Christian and she brought those values to bear in almost every aspect of educating her young youth. Reverend Dr. E.P. Cohen, secretary of the Freedmen's Board of the Presbyterian Church, said that her father, David Laney, has put no son into the gospel ministry to succeed him, but his worthy daughter, Lucy, is today practically doing the work of a faithful minister and servant of Christ. Miss Laney is a graduate of Atlanta University and has an education of which no woman in this land, white or colored, need be ashamed. Similar to Nanny Helen Burroughs and the male counterpart she was often compared to, Lucy Craft Laney also believed that respectability and hard work could gain her young charges respect in the eyes of the white communities they were entering. We have to remember back then that it was important for black people to gain a foothold in our society. Now that we have gained footholds in the society, we see very clearly that people are pushing back against those footholds that black people have gained in society. When I think of Lucy, the daughter of two once enslaved people who watched her hard work and intellect open doors that had been closed to her ancestors for many years, I understand this perspective. The young woman found herself on the cusp of black citizenship during a time in America's history when her kinsmen were wrestling with what it meant to be a part of this society in the first place. Cast into a new era of the fight for equality Education had always been a key in Lucy's life, first for her father in his quest to purchase his own freedom, then for her own mother in her unique position as a literate enslaved woman, and then for Lucy herself as a young graduate and professional. Lucy's road to agency was paved with books. She walked that road and guided many others along it. Notably, her own school was first intended to be a school for girls, but when young men came to her door, she did not send them away. She didn't say, sorry guys, can't educate you because this school is only for girls. But unfortunately, many times in the past, schools that were for men often turned away women quite a bit. What do you think about that? Special guest. Special guest. Oh, Hallelujah. Good to see everyone here. Um, I will tell you one thing is that the sense of maternity, you know, loving, caring, embracing, nurturing, um, literally, that was just in the heart of women. And I really thank God for that ability that they have, particularly as we deal with African-American women, because, you know, we have mitochondrial Eve, uh, who basically, you know, the basis of the entire human population. But we have to realize that despite what other people do to further exclude, you know, exclusive lifestyles, you know, once you break past that mental block, you began to see just how much diversity and how much, you know, exchange between 
you know, like male you know, and female, between black and white, between whatever, how when you come together, that there's a greater strengthening of the human bond in that. So those who don't restrict people based on what age or gender or a ethnic basis, now you will see a greater sense of God's heart being manifested through those processes. Well said. And now we are moving to our second talk for today. And that is Black Theology and Black Power. We have been in this book for a minute and we are actually coming to um, the closing revelations of this book. We are in the final section, which is uh, Revolution, Violence and Reconciliation in Black Theology. And we are now on the section entitled Violence. What does the Black theology have to do with violence? And that's what we're going to read and talk about. To raise the question of revolution is to raise the question of violence. Revolution always involves coercion. Is Black theology a theology of violence is the question. Does it advocate guerrilla warfare against the white adversary? These questions are not new. They are the kinds of theoretical questions that we expect from those who sit in the grandstand of middle-class Western morality, untouched by the strings and the stings of oppression. They are also existential questions which the oppressed themselves are forced to think through as the oppressors continue to tighten the rope. When the oppressed first come into the recognition of their humanity and their treatment as things by the societal structures, the response usually consists of spontaneous, undisciplined outbursts of violence saying, we can't stand any more of this. But the masters are always silent on injustice saying, justice will come only in a stable orderly society, which means at the good pleasure of the white overlords. Therefore, if black theology is to speak to the predicament of the oppressed, it must deal honestly with the question of violence. First, we must realize that to carve out a theology of black revolution, which does not sidestep the question of violence, is difficult. It is normal with a Western view of morality to think that any expression of violence, at least by the disenfranchised, is unchristian. By contrast, it is quite normal to think that a nation has a right to defend its national interests with violence, especially if it happens to be part of the free world. It is interesting that so many advocates of nonviolence as the only possible Christian response of black people to white domination are also the most ardent defenders of the right of the police to put down black rebellion through violence. Another interesting corollary is their defense of America's right to defend violently the government of South Vietnam against the North. Remember at the time of his writing, the uh, Vietnam War was going on. Somehow, he says, I am unable to follow this reasoning. Our chief difficulty with black theology and violence, however, arises from the New Testament itself. The New Testament picture of Christ seems to suggest that he was against violence as a proper redress. He certainly never resorted to violence, though he did turn over a table. In fact, he seemed to have avoided the term Messiah as a personal designation because of its political or violent implications. Also, his constant references to love and the turning of the other cheek 
seem to indicate that the Christian life cannot be one characterized by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Does not Jesus clearly say that his ministry is for the meek and helpless precisely because they are without an advocate? And even if we agree that love, as suggested in chapter 2, includes power, does this mean the power of violence? Is it not true that the power of love, as expressed in the life and death of Jesus, eschews the use of violence and emphasizes the inward power of the Christian man to accept everything the enemy dishes out? Is this not what he meant when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Can we then, by any strength of the imagination or clever exegesis, interpret his command to turn the other cheek to mean the turning of a gun? These questions are not easy to answer. The real danger of these questions is the implied literalism in them. Like the fundamentalists who stress the verbal inspiration of scripture, this view suggests that ethical questions dealing with violence can be solved by asking, what would Jesus do? We cannot solve ethical questions of the 20th century by looking at what Jesus did in the first century. Our choices are not the same as his. Being Christian does not mean following in his steps. His steps are not ours. And thus we are placed in an existential situation in which we are forced to decide without knowing what Jesus would do. The Christian does not ask what Jesus would do as if Jesus were confined to the first century. We ask, what is he doing? Where is he at work? And even though these are the right questions, they cannot be answered once and for all. Each situation has its own problematic circumstances, which force the believer to think through each act of obedience without an absolute ethical guide from Jesus. To look for such a guide is to deny the freedom of the Christian man. His only point of reference is the freedom granted in Christ to be all for the neighbor. Therefore, simply to say that Jesus did not use violence is no evidence relevant to the condition of black people as they decide on what to do about white oppression. The first task of Christian ethics is to invalidate this knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Bonhoeffer is referring to the Pharisaic and philosophical assumption that there, is an, that there is a guide or an absolute standard to right and wrong. For the Pharisee, every moment of life becomes a situation of conflict in which he has to choose between good and evil. For the sake of avoiding any lapse, his entire thought is devoted night and day to anticipating the range of possible conflicts. The Pharisee is a man who figures out on the basis of law what is the right and wrong course of action. If asked why he chose this action rather than that, he can rationally defend himself. Especially the Pharisee is not a doer of good or evil. He is basically one who judges the actions of others. But to assume that one has knowledge of good and evil is to ignore the fall of man. It assumes that doing the will of God means obeying a system of rules, a pattern of life. It fails to recognize that the knowledge of Jesus is entirely transformed into action without any reflection upon a man's self. A man's own goodness is now concealed from him. It is not merely that he is no longer obliged to be the judge of his own goodness. 
he must no longer desire to know of it at all, or rather, he is no longer permitted to know of it. He's, his deed has become entirely unquestioning. He is devoted to that deed and filled with it. It is no longer one possibility among many, but the only thing, the important thing, the will of God. In dealing with the question of violence in black people, black theology does not begin by assuming that this question can be answered merely by looking at the Western distinction between right and wrong. It begins by looking at the face of black America in the light of Jesus Christ. To be Christian means that one is concerned not about good and evil in the abstract, but one is concerned about people who are lynched, beaten, and denied the basic needs of life. It is not enough to know that black people make up a high percentage of the poor, that white complacency forces them to live in rat infested places, that despite the gains of civil rights laws, police brutality is still on the increase, that the appeal to love and nonviolence is a technique of the rich to keep the poor poor. These facts must be translated into human beings. While America is the richest country in the world as a result of the involuntary servitude of blacks and the annihilation of indigenous people, this country persists in expecting black people to accept their ideas of freedom and democracy. This country expects black people to respect law and order while others beat them over the head. It is this perspective which black theology must face before it can deal with the question of violence. It is not that black Americans suffer more than any other people in the world or even more than some white people in America. We may safely assume that the blacks of America suffered more physically in the past than today. As the adversary would say, black people never had it so good. Black suffering is not new, but what is new is black consciousness. Black people know who they are, and to know who you are is to set limits on your being. It means that any act of oppression will be met with almighty halt. Any act of freedom will be met with an almighty advance. This is the mood of Black America, which gives rise to Black theology. It does not matter how many gains are made in civil rights, progress is irrelevant. The face of the Black revolutionary will always be there as long as white people persist in defining the boundary of Black being. It is the price one pays for oppression. The system, symbolized in words, law, and order, can only mean injustice for Black people as long as the structure operates on the basis of racism. The appeal to democracy becomes a facade behind which the white hierarchy defends its right to rule over black people. In any case, the majority of black people see no relationship between the democratic process and their attempt to be free. Is it in this situation that black theology must speak the word of God? How does it begin to deal with the face of the black revolutionary? Black theology says with Jose Benino, that a Christian must think through the question of revolution on the basis of his faith, and he must express this interpretation 
in the concrete situation and translate it into action. This means that the Christian is placed in a situation in which he alone makes the choice. The dichotomy between good and evil is a false one. The Christian man has not to simply decide between right and wrong, but between right and right and between wrong and wrong. Good as what it is responsible is performed in ignorance to good and in surrender to God. Black theology realizes that violence per se is not the primary question. Violence is a subordinate and relative question. It is subordinate because it has to do with the cost of desired change. It is this fact that most people seem to overlook, the fact that violence already exists. The Christian does not decide between violence and nonviolence, evil and good. He is deciding between the less and the greater evil that already exists. He must ponder whether revolutionary violence is less or more deplorable. There are no absolute rules which can decide with certainty. He must make a choice. If he decides to take the nonviolent way, then he is saying, that revolutionary violence is more detrimental to man in the long run than systemic violence. But if the system is evil, then revolutionary violence will be justified and sometimes necessary. Whether the American system is beyond redemption, we will have to wait and see. But we can be certain that black patience is running out. And unless white America responds to the theory and activity of black power, then a bloody protracted civil war may be inevitable. There have occasionally been revolutions, massive redistributions of power without warfare. It is passionately to be hoped that this can be one of those times. The decision lies with white America and not least with white Americans who speak the name of Christ. So that is what James Cone had to say about the possibility of violence being connected to liberation theology. <sighs> well, there's, there's a lot to absorb and a lot to discuss in this whole thing, but there is a, a message that I really like to, since we're talking about theology aspect, I looked at the script here in Timothy, 2 Timothy, but understand this, this is Paul to Timothy talking about, but understand this, the last days, dangerous times of great stress and trouble will come difficult days that will be hard to bear for people will be lovers of self narcissistic self-focused lovers of money impelled by greed boastful arrogant revilers disobedient ungrateful unholy and profane they will be unloving which is devoid of natural human affection Calloused and inhumane, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, devoid of self control, brutal, haters of good, traitors, reckless, conceited. Okay, now it says that um, they hold on to a form of outward godliness, although they have denied its power for their conduct nullifies their claim of faith. Such people, avoid such people and keep far away from 
them. Okay. So what happens is this passage was written before the um, United States of America was actually even, you know, co-opted through violence. Okay. So the whole nature and the whole building of this Western world was a product of extreme violence sanctioned, quote unquote, by God through, quote unquote, people who say that they were messengers of God. Okay. However, when you look at the messages here of the warnings that we need to understand that people were devoid of human affection, callous and inhumane. You have to be inhumane to go about and destroy people in the name of greed. You know, uh, Paul pens it well saying that they were <sighs> from such people, you know, stay away from these people. So when you look at the concept, we're not going to say violence. People look at violence in different ways. Violence physically where there's bloodshed or violence, meaning that you are actually, you know, backing away or not embracing people. Well, we don't embrace people who are committed to genocide, who are committed to your destruction, who are committed to your complete demise. Okay, they are not of faith. You have to be <clears throat> devoid of human affection to mow down people and to promote a life of violence. The two Justin gentlemen in the Congress of Tennessee were standing in the place where they were addressing the very things that Paul was addressing. We have to turn away and not embrace this reckless, conceited, you know, violent, devoid of self-control, malicious kind of people, okay? So what happens is when people, you have to really look at it. When we take a stand, our stand is to separate ourselves, to sanctify ourselves from those who are committed to violence. And a part of doing that is to understand their mind and their mental capacities on how they would like to produce and work at producing such violence. We look at those things, we digest it, and we stay away from those type of actions. So that's one thing I just want to share in this discussion. Yeah. One of the things that he said here that I think is key to all of this, he said people get excited, right? Or they get anxious when they hear the term revolutionary violence. But what James Cone is laying out that ultimately there is a systemic violence happening. Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide is the systemic violence um, okay to never respond to it with revolutionary violence? Uh -huh. Because the system of enslavement, right, uh -huh. was a system of extreme violence and harm. Uh -huh. And the whole reason why we have a history of what's called slave revolts was because there were revolutionists that rose up and some of them used violence to overthrow a systemic violence. 
So even today, some people would say that Nat Turner and Denmark VC and even Harriet Tubman, they would call her evil because they would say that the means in which they used to break free were not good means. Mm. While at the same time, doing nothing or saying nothing about the system of violence by which they were all born into. And so this is a theological question that I'm sure our generation is going to continue to deal with and continue to, to um, contend with. But it's something to think about. Where do you stand on that? That if you have to defend or protect yourself or your family or your life through physical violence against a system of violence, where would you stand in that? Well, it's one thing I tell you, you have to understand is like freeing yourself from the grips and the paws of oppression has significant, significant discussion about this all throughout the scriptures. The very man Samson, the very man David, the very, I mean, very, all the prophets and the people that have gone before who were messianic in their, in their, in their calling of life, they were there to stop people from destroying their livelihood, their civilization, and their ability to worship God freely. So what we have to understand is that you're not there to go and be um, offensive, to go and want to destroy people just for their basis of existence. What you're there to do is to, even in the scripture says, put on the whole armor of God to stand and stand therefore in the evil day. And part of the standing in the evil day is that to be alive, to be able to stand. A part of that process means that you may encounter situations where you have to defend yourself in order not to be annihilated. And that's something that is a very fundamental uh, right of a human being. I mean, every animal in the kingdom, they work, they run, or they battle to continue to fight for their life and existence. You know, like we said, we're dealing with, as Paul said, people who are devoid of, of their intemperate, immoral, haters, and they have their callous and they're inhumane. So you're working against a spirit of these things and part of your work against the spirit of, of these things is to, to, what do you call it, to bring a cease and desist order to those who are operating in those spirits. And that's what we have to work on. All right. We're going to let you come on. If you want to come on at this time, we have got about a good 10 minutes to have some discourse today. So if you would like to share in our, in conversing and feedback, and just giving us your thoughts on today, click the camera and we will bring you on. If you have been listening by Anchor, I want to thank you again for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so be light. Take care.